0: The following is a presentation of WAER Sports, the original home of the Orangemen.
1: Hope is the opposite of fear, and fear is the absence of what we love. And we are right now without so many of the things that we love. And whether it's sports, family, friends, we are without so many of the things that make us who we are.
0: They do so in in a day littered with questions. They're on their way to the quarterfinals if it happens on one of the wackiest days that you can possibly
2: remember. fans, due to unforeseen circumstances, the game tonight has been postponed. You are all safe.
3: The sports world has come to a screeching halt. The league has made a
0: decision to end this year's Atlantic Coast Conference
1: Men's Basketball Tournament. Hop. Let's stay safe. Let's stay safe,
4: Jack. From WAER Sports, this is Talk Back. I'm Cooper Boardman. In a lot of ways, there's a sense of community that's missing right now, at least in the usual ways. There aren't fans inside the Carrier Dome, and the usual postseason roar in basketball and hockey... Has been silenced with that said there are these moments of community that's in and out of sports just searching the word community on twitter is revealing the first result was a local organization getting volunteers for a chorus that would record songs for medical workers the second was advice from a group of nuns giving wisdom on how to live in isolation Even sports Twitter, furiously pounding out its thoughts on the last dance, is a form of community. And Without our usual meeting places, we haven't lost our desire to be together. This week, we'll look at the things that give us hope, what the return of sports will mean to us, what home truly means, and how athletics can begin to heal a community. We'll talk with the people who are thinking about these things, too. That in the context of the NHL, the NFL, and a big-time sports city. First, though, a reminder. Subscribe to TalkBack on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at WAER Sports. And on SoundCloud, just search WAER. SU alum Scott Hansen is the host of NFL Red Zone. You know when Scott walks into a room. His smile and his energy jump through the TV on Sundays as he guides you through every touchdown from every game. He's back
0: almost 260 days since the last time Tom Brady played in a game that counted. How hot is the post-suspension fire burning?
4: Hansen also played college football at Syracuse, part of an orange community during the Marvin Harrison years in the early 90s. Here's WAER's Corey Spector.
5: You started at Syracuse as a walk-on back in 89, and by the time you finished, you won four bowls, that's correct? And uh,
0: Four for four in bowl games, you got it. Yeah. One of
5: two classes to do that. You played for two different head coaches. So wh- what are some of your fondest memories playing football at Syracuse?
0: Yeah, so I came in in 1989. I grew up in, in uh, Michigan, suburban Detroit, and was a good football player in high school, team captain and all conference and stuff like that. But I was not a Division One football player. Well, I had already decided that I wanted to try and become a sportscaster. And my dad and I did a bunch of research to say, well, where can you get a great education for that? And obviously, first and last stop is Syracuse. So I knew I wanted to go to school there. And I was like, man, I know it's that's big time Division One college football, but I love the game so much. I, I want to try it. So a funny story, I wrote Dick McPherson at the time, the head coach, I wrote Coach Mack and the coaching staff a letter, I want to say the spring of my senior year in high school saying, Hey, my name's Scott Hanson, I'm from Rochester, Michigan. Here are my here's my height, weight, speed, here are my, you know, high school accolades and stuff. And I would love to walk on the Syracuse football team. Didn't hear anything back week or two later wrote another letter didn't hear anything back did this about i want to say easily four or five times I, it may have even been like six or seven so it turns out and i find this out a few years later i find out this part of the story coach mac apparently came into one of their you know spring football coaches meetings with like a stack of letters from scott hansen from michigan threw him down on the table and was like, this kid from Michigan wants to come here and walk on. Coach Mack assigned me to one of his coaches to say, okay, contact this kid and say, you you can have a tryout. I left and I said, guys, I don't know if I'm coming back in four days or I'm coming back in four years. And, And went there, walked on, did enough in those four days to show him that I really wanted to be there. And yeah, played there for four years. 4-0 in bowl games and uh, played with some great, great football players that that went on to the NFL.
5: You've mentioned before to to other people that your goal was always to be the next Bob Costas. So when you were in the locker room, A, did your fellow teammates know that was your goal? And then if so, (laughs) did they make fun of you? Did they try to make you do some things live? Like, what, what were they doing to you?
0: The freshman football players used to come four days before the veterans we had our first team meeting, and it was just the coaches and the freshman class, because the others weren't there yet. And each guy had to stand up, and you said, You know, I'm Kevin Mitchell from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I play, you know, linebacker. I'm 6'2, 250 pounds, da 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 da. And, and something, about, something about you, so your teammates could get to know you. So it's my turn to stand up, and I stand up, and most guys said like three words and sat back down. I'm such an idiot. I stand up and I'm trying to make an impression because I wasn't recruited. None of these guys know me. None of these coaches know me. I went on for at least like a minute or two in my little, hi, I'm Scott Hansen and here's who I am and here's what I do and da 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 I kind of noticed like I'm trying to make an impression and I'm thinking, oh man, is this not working? And it backfired because the next day or two, we're in between drills or something and there was a coach named Mike Wojcik He was the strength and conditioning coach at Syracuse. He went on to have an NFL career as a strength and conditioning coach that is unparalleled. I think he has six Super Bowl rings. One of the most legendary strength coaches of all time. But he was a hard nosed, no nonsense, talked out of the side of his mouth like this. We're in between drills at practice, and this is two or three days after I did my "Hi, I'm Scott Hansen" thing, and. And I'm like, Coach, Coach Wojcik, it's great to be out here today. My thing was enthusiasm. I wasn't fast, tall, strong, anything else like that. But I I could control my enthusiasm. So I'm like, like I'm pep-talking everybody out there. And Wojcik is standing next to me. And I'm like, let's go, Coach Wojcik, let's go, let's do this. Let's get it after it today, you know. And he looks at me and he goes, Hanson, you can take that Bob Costas act and shove it up your ass. And I don't think I ever talked to Mike Wojcik one-on-one for the remainder of my years or his years at Sirius.
5: How many times did a new house class conflict with uh, practice?
0: I actually graduated in four and a half years. My senior year, there were some labs, we called them, 300-level classes, which were intense, like, You actually get to go in and produce a newscast. But those classes were only offered at a specific time. Courses are running right in the middle of the day on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever it was. And I would have had to miss football practice. So I talked to my parents and I was like, what if I just took other courses in my senior year that would fit with my practice schedule? And could I come back for one extra fall semester and without football after my four years of football was up? Believe it or not, I never missed a practice because of class, and I never missed a class because of practice. And that goes to my parents, who were willing to spend the money as a walk-on. I got no scholarship money, so my parents were willing to spend the extra money to send me back for one extra semester, and that was the semester that I also got involved with WAER.
5: You've done these sabbaticals throughout your career. You've been with the missionaries of charity. You've lived with people in poverty. What have you learned from all of those different experiences and how do you apply it to this situation right now?
0: I looked at my career as something I was geared towards from early high school. There's a lot of people in high school, you don't know what you want to do for a living or you know, make a career. I was, I was already set. And I, I had geared everything in my life towards being the next Bob Costas. He was on network television by the time he was 20 years old or whatever it was, I'm gonna be there when I'm 25 years old. And I was, I was maniacal, one track minded in that. Uh, long story short, I went through an entire change in my life, a spiritual change. Uh, I became a Christian in my early, uh, mid twenties actually. And, it, and it, uh, with, with a spiritual perspective that I never had before, things in the world changed. And the way I looked at everything changed. The way I looked at relationships, the way I looked at um, money and time and, 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 and career. And so I, I wanted to grow in that. And one of the ways that I felt I needed to grow in that was to actually leave television. And so I have, as you mentioned, I, I've left television twice in my career. And when I left, I didn't know, I wasn't saying, oh, I'm going to take six months off or a year off. I was like, Lord, I'm leaving. And if I never come back, okay, just show me the way that you would have me go. But I want to live a life, a a genuine life, not just about earthly things, but kind of thinking more with an eternal perspective. Uh, It led me to, uh, on a path of not only personal growth, but trying to live that out with other people. So yeah, it's led me to, on a path of uh, personal spiritual growth, living out my faith, uh, hopefully in, in a genuine fashion and trying to help others along the way. And and maybe that dovetails with the time and place and history that you and I are talking right now. Because I think as we've all been shut into our homes, there have been people that have thought, wow, this life isn't just about the 70, 80, 90 years that I have. There's got to be something more and there's and there's people as, as rough as whatever we have right now. There are people who are really, really struggling. And If there's anything good that comes from the coronavirus uh, time frame of history here, maybe it's that we are more kind to each other, uh, reach out a helping hand to each other, and uh, try and um, give back to maybe where we come from, which is one of the reasons why I'm here talking to a a soon-to-be fellow Syracuse alum today.
5: You've created a, a community of people within NFL Red Zone and with fans throughout the NFL. What, what have you learned about those people during this time?
0: Maybe not learning something new about our audience, but, but um, continuing to know about our audiences that, man, they are passionate. They like the juice. I think during replay, maybe I'm learning that even if people know the outcomes, you still get to watch the season again and go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. You can kind of watch the game with a little more of a discerning eye. And I think fans have had a great time doing that as we've been going through 17 weeks of NFL Red Zone replay in 17 straight days.
5: Scott, there's a world in which the NHL and the NBA can't come back this summer. Major League Baseball maybe doesn't come back. There is a world in which the NFL starts in September and you are the first face that people see for live television (laughs) in nearly half a year. What's that going to be like for you if that
0: happens? Dude, I have not even thought about that. You know, I get fired up just on a regular NFL Sunday. I get especially fired up at week one of an NFL Sunday. I can't imagine if if it was a scenario where we were the first welcome back to sporting society uh, in 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 the United States, we wouldn't get to that point unless there was some level of public sa- health safety reached, where we could feel safe about going, you know, back to our schools and workplaces and whatnot. Uh, and then and then the the cherry on the top would be one of our favorite favorite passions outside of you know family and career. NFL football is coming back, and here comes NFL Red Zone. But if that happens, you and I got to talk. You and I need to talk a week one. If that scenario plays out, you and I need to talk pre-week one of the NFL season, and and we'll come up with something good to welcome, welcome pro football back.
4: Scott, we'd love to hear that conversation, although it's hard to imagine him being even more hyped up than what you just heard. But I go back to what Hansen said a little bit earlier. He called football our passion. It's ours because of how sports bring people together. We saw a glimpse of that even last week during the NFL draft. The simple words with the first overall pick brought a tiny bit of normalcy back to all of us. For Hector Ledesma, community is deep, a 2001 SU grad Ledesma is the Sports Director at Sports Tonight on KCWX in San Antonio. That's the city where he grew up and the place where he's worked since 2005. With that in mind, here's WAER's Brandon Ross.
3: I kind of want to just start off with your relationship to San Antonio. You grew up there and now you work there. What is how deep do you feel the connection to the community?
2: Uh, When I went up to SU, it's because I wanted to do this whole sports broadcasting thing. And I wanted to do it at home. Like, truth be told, you know, I know everybody who wants to SU wants to or who goes to SU wants to be Costa, Stockton, Torrico, right? I I wanted to just, you know, get the best possible education and training and then come back home and do it here, you know, maybe in Dallas, maybe in Houston. Well, not, not so much Houston, but I wanted to do it. At home, you know, I grew up a diehard fan of the Cowboys, diehard a uh, fan of the Spurs. And I see the Cowboys before the Spurs because uh, San Antonio's like an extension of Dallas when it comes to the Cowboys. So suffice to say, this area in terms of sports is where it all started for me. Like the whole reason I wanted to do was, wanted to do the whole sports broadcasting thing was not because I felt the need to be in media or I wanted to have my voice heard. I just wanted to be around sports. And I realized, well, I'm not going to be good enough to play in the NBA or the NFL. I realized that really early on. So I thought, how else can I be around it? And I thought sports broadcasting or sports, sports journalism is a way in which I can be around it. And, oh, by the way, it would be really cool if I could cover the Spurs and maybe one day cover them on the way to an NBA championship and cover them winning an NBA championship. Now, remember, that mindset's in the 90s when it was David Robinson, Sean Elliott, Avery Johnson, and the Spurs weren't going, they were good, but they weren't going to contend for a title. This is pre-Duncan. So those were my dreams. That's what I wanted to do. And so basically my love for sports stems from me being a San Antonio guy. Home is the reason why I do this sports stuff, you know, to begin with. To this day, the one thing I always say is, hey, look, you know, people can get their LeBron highlights, their Brady news elsewhere. You know they can't get their in-depth nitty-gritty Spurs news anywhere else. They can't get their in-depth nitty-gritty UT A&M you know news anywhere, and they certainly aren't going to get their UTSA local high school coverage anywhere else. So you know San Antonio to this day really remains a uh, a big part, the the biggest part of
3: of what I do professionally. Of course, you had those four years in Syracuse. The the photo of you. Uh, Carter, Andrew, and I forget who the fourth is. But- Kevin Cooper? Yep, the four of you. The photos still hang on the entrance of the doorway.
2: Yeah, I, I knew that. That's that's awesome, you know, and the really great thing about that class, that 01 class, Damon Amendolara, Bill Voth, um, Adam Cooperstein, uh, Mark Penzner, you know, guys, Adam Levinson, Andy Jones, guys that were on staff, Howard Chen, and, and I know I'm I'm inevitably, I'm gonna leave a name or two off, but uh, the guys who were on staff during uh, my senior year, that group of guys, uh, as as good as they are professionally, they're even better people. And it's easy to see why they've succeeded the way they have because at the end of the day, they do it the right way. And not just when they clock in, they do everything, you know, the, the right way. So, uh, you know, really cool to be part of that class and to call those guys friends. Uh, you got any fun road trip
3: experiences from that senior year? <laughs>
2: Yeah, a, a ton. Um, SU at West Virginia, this is the night before the game. We went to go eat at like a Logan's Roadhouse or something, and we see an ambulance outside the, the Logan's. We're like, uh, and then we see, you know, somebody being wheeled out into the ambulance at said Logan's, and we're like, okay, out of here. You know, we, we, don't, we, don't need it. we don't need to ask questions. We don't need answers to our questions. I think, I think we're good. And so I think we, we, we turned around, we left, and then we went out that night to like this, um, this interesting, let's, let's, let's put it that way, this interesting bar that night in Morgantown. Um, and of course, these are the days when Syracuse was still in the Big East. So West Virginia was, you know, a foe every single year. Um, that place was quite interesting. And that was like, you know, we, you had somewhat of Hispanic descent, a couple of folks of Jewish descent and a guy of African-American descent, like walking is like, it was a, it was a joke. Like it was the beginning of a joke, you know, a Hispanic, uh, a, a black guy and two Jews walk into a bar. Like we that's essentially what happened in West Virginia. Let's just say it was nothing, nothing specifically happened. that I know there's no juice in that somebody got thrown out. There were no bar fights, or, you know, but it was just interesting to be able to, for the four of us to be in that dynamic. That in of itself was a little bit of a. I uh, I think eye-opening is too strong a term, uh, but it was, it was a little bit different, and it, it's definitely something that was memorable.
3: And I kind of want to stick with that for a certain uh, second, because obviously you are Hispanic, and representation is obviously still something that continues to be an issue in sports media. How does being a Hispanic journalist sort of shape your perspective on things?
2: The, the language thing is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I, I'm not – Spanish was my first language, but unfortunately – it's it, it no longer is the whole bilingual thing has never really been a factor in terms of what I do on air. What it has been a factor is um, you know soccer players or minor league baseball players you know come from you know Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, uh, Mexico. You know being able to communicate with them, get you know kind of, even if the even if the interview was in English, being able to communicate with them in Spanish, you know, because the natural kind of off camera. Conversational Spanish, I'm still good there. You know, so putting the being able to put them at ease in Spanish is key um, and has been key. Um, but I would say that you know, in terms of the way it's shaped, um, my view, I will say this, Brandon, and and I don't I don't mean to get on on the soapbox. Um, I'm very much a believer in the best guy for the job. I honestly do think that for the most part, the people who get certain jobs are the best. Uh, at, or, or were the best candidate or will do that job as well or better than whomever they were chosen above. All that being said, I have wondered, You know, I have thought to myself, you know, you hear when you're growing up and you hear as you're, as you're beginning your educational process, you often hear people talk about your Hispanic, when they talk about your Hispanic descent, they say that's going to be helpful because in a couple of years, Hispanics are going to be in high demand. Um, I've been hearing that for years. Um, my first job was in two thousand and one. that's when I graduated SU. And I haven't really seen it play out to fruition. Things kind of play out the way they should, um and and there's a reason for it and 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 that reason is kind of over my pay grade for lack of a better term. But I do think that, you know, there is that kind of element to what we do, and that, yeah, I, I wonder why maybe you don't see more Hispanics, you know, whether it's Puerto Rican Americans, Mexican Americans, you know, uh, whatever it might be, Venezuelan Americans, whatever, why you don't see them more on, you know, the NFL networks, the MLB networks, the NBA TVs, not that those folks are doing a bad job, not that those folks shouldn't be there. It's just something that kind of makes you think when you do think back in terms of heritage, upbringing, culture, and and job. What have you learned about sports during all this? I've often said this, you know, and and. You know, and another example of how people take the direction from sports, uh, Tim Duncan recently, um, you know, uh, elected to the Hall of Fame. It, it was a mere formality, right? We knew that him, Kobe, and, and Garnett were going to get in the moment that, I mean, the moment those guys retired. When Tim retired, I did a little piece on reflecting through, through on Tim through my eyes. I do not know adulthood without Duncan, literally. As my parents and I were about to leave the house for a party to celebrate my 18th birthday, there were the Spurs lucking into Tim Duncan by way of the NBA lottery. Five months later, Tim, in his second ever pro game, brought home to me. Watching in person as a freshman in Syracuse, New York, the Spurs faced the Knicks in a preseason game up in the Carrier Dome. It was as reassuring as a phone call home or a conversation with a high school buddy. And I'm betting each of you has your own October 12th or May 18th. The reason I did this piece was because, hey, what he means to me is pretty common to what he meant to other San Antonians. Like, Tim Duncan was this unifying force for San Antonio. You know, for so long, the city of San Antonio, and to this day, it still has that little brother mentality. Dallas is bigger. Houston is bigger. Uh-oh, Austin's now becoming more prevalent than we are. You know, there's always that mindset that we're not, we're not quite good enough mindset. When Tim came, he changed all of that. So from this kid who grew up on the city's west side, dreaming that I would cover the Spurs in the finals one day, thank you, Tim, for allowing me to do it three times. For allowing me to cover the best power forward in the history of basketball. And still years later, for bringing home to me with those interviews on playoff road trips. But most importantly, thanks for making the person who lives in Stone Oak, or on MLK, or off Southwest Military Drive, or in Greater San Antonio, my neighbor, instead of a stranger. It's fitting that if you add a zero to the end of Tim's jersey number, you get the three digits that most define this city. Because a huge part of our story is about Tim Duncan. So there was something to be said about every San Antonian taking their direction from Tim Duncan and the Spurs. And then that, that, that good feeling of we can, and we did. And Hey, you know, Hey, so-and-so person who grew up, who grew up and is from the other side of town and is vastly different from, from me, we're connected. We're the same because we both love number 21 and the Spurs and we can both celebrate that, that at the river walk and we can do this and we can do that. It, w- it was, it was a very unifying thing. Um, and so, you know, it's a different example. It's 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 you could say it's on the other extreme from from the tragedy and of the pandemic and the and the seriousness of the uh, severity of the pandemic to the good times and the great feeling of 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 you know success when it comes to sports unifying a city. But I think at the same time that kind of encapsulates what sports can be to a community: the good and the bad. It's always there. So
3: personally, how have you been looking to find hope in all this?
2: I've, I've actually looked to my family. Look, I'm working from home. I've got a makeshift work home studio. Um, so while I'm home, I'm just going to enjoy the heck out of being home. So I've got a seven-year-old. I've got a wife. I've got a seven-year-old. When the seven-year-old runs up to my to my uh, to my uh, my home office, knocks on my door, and it's at the absolute worst time when it comes to work. You know, I'm in the middle of a uh, of a tight deadline or finishing up a script or what have you, or or I'm on what have you instead of getting upset or that kind of you know not now now's not a good time um just accommodating and just being just realizing that it's not always going to be like this there's going to be a day and it's coming soon where i'm going to physically be at work and my daughter knocking on my door asking you know because whatever because she wants to play because she wants to see me because she's having trouble with her homework what have you um, it, it, it's not—it's not going to be a reality. Like it's not going to happen. And so that's what I try to do. Uh, Is—is—that's is, to try the, the best way I try to find hope. Brandon is, um, you know, what what can how can I make the best out of what's a very tough situation and c- certainly more tough for others and for those who who's lost who have lost loved ones. Um, how do I make the best of that? And, and that's the best way is just kind of family, not 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 brushing, not brushing family off because of brick deadlines, if you will, and not putting family on the back burner. Just kind of soaking that in because that's, you know, when we get back to normal, you know, um, you know, that's uh, that's not going to be something that happens routinely anymore.
4: And family can mean so many things for Hector. It's, of course, his immediate family. It's also the city of San Antonio, where he's from dan duva is the radio play-by-play voice of the vegas golden knights he studied at su and fordham and then returned to the syracuse community in 2012 as the voice of the syracuse crunch then after five seasons in the ahl dan moved on to las vegas and he found himself in a city with people from everywhere all of whom are part of the same community it's true that a great
1: number of people here are transplants whether from california or say New York or other parts of the country and so many of them have the experience of rooting for their favorite team and when they come here they're looking for something to make themselves local what is something you can be proud of in this community that's not the Las Vegas Strip because that's what most people know Las Vegas to be the Strip anytime somebody from Las Vegas goes elsewhere and they're asked about living in Las Vegas the first thing that'll come up will be hey how about those Golden Knights what a hockey team you guys have and people are proud about that people rallied around that Max Pacioretty who came to the Golden Knights after the first season had been the captain of the Montreal Canadiens summed it up perfectly he said people fell in love with the Golden Knights and then
4: they fell in love with hockey Dan arrived in Las Vegas in September of 2017. On October 1st, tragedy struck. At least 58 people now dead. More than 500 people wounded in a horrific shooting on the Las Vegas Strip. It's the deadliest mass shooting in modern United States history. Nine days later, the Golden Knights played their first home game in franchise history. Here's WAER's Frankie Vernowski. It became
1: just like... The Red Sox after the the marathon, or the, or the Astros after the hurricane. Uh, again, that that Vegas strong mantra. Um, yeah. What was it, that like building upon that? Because that's such a it's such an emotional way to tackle the season, and and you documented. You know how how do I go about mm-hmm. correctly addressing this? Right. I drew on my experience as a teenager in northern New Jersey from September 11th. I was a junior in high school when the World Trade Center attack happened. A number of people in my town died. One of my best friend's dad was in the World Trade Center. And that was as difficult as anything I've gone through in my life, and it affects me to this day. And at the same time, I thought about what we all learn from that experience and how people can come together and how sports can be that great communal bond. And uh, whether it was Mike Piazza hitting the home run in the first game back at Shea, George W. Bush throwing out the first pitch strike at Yankee Stadium the World Series. Thank you, Mr. President. And in Ridgewood, New Jersey, my high school's football team, Creating an award in honor of my buddy's dad who had passed away that ultimately was given to me and my broadcast partner Guy Benson, and that was as meaningful as anything that's happened to me in my life. Really, as a journalist and and broadcasting my high school's football games, we wanted to document what was going on. We wanted to tell the story. It wasn't so much about how I was feeling or how anybody else was feeling. It was what are we going to do to tell the story here? And that's what we did. And I remember going through Ridgewood, New Jersey, and with a video camera and uh, putting together something that would be a tribute that we could air on our football broadcast and try to get back to something that we all needed to get back to. And I'm sure I had a lot of people who, who helped me through that because, boy, I you know, was 16 years old. And uh, I thought that we handled it really well, as hard as it was. And um, I have often thought about that through the years, whenever a challenging situation has come about. But of course, very little has approximated September 11th. But October 1st did, because not only was this a, a sports situation where I, as a broadcaster, wanted to convey the information, convey the emotion of a sporting event, it was to a brand new audience. The the Mets and Yankees, of course, had been so well established in New York when they helped the city heal. In Las Vegas, the Golden Knights had yet to play a regular season game when October 1 happened. So here it was, the launch of Major League Sports, and it was also a tribute to the people who had been killed and the people who had been injured and the first responders.
3: We are Vegas strong.
1: It was this... Incredible contrast of celebrating a new team, celebrating the coming together of this community, while also memorializing those whom we had lost. So there is that important connection, and uh, I said it at the time on the broadcast. You know, there are tears of sadness, there are tears of joy, and there are the tears of the kind we just experienced. What I felt, people were cheering and crying their eyes out at the same time in the moments before they dropped the puck on that first game, when Derek Englund, the Golden Knights defenseman who had played minor league hockey here, delivered that speech, and uh, I often thought about how uh, you might put that into words, and you really couldn't, other than it was finally okay to cheer, because for the preceding 10 days, you walked around with a blank look on your face. And if somebody asked, how's it going? You couldn't say, oh, I'm great, how are you? No, of course not. But when they dropped that puck and then Vegas scored four times in the first 11 minutes, it was okay to cheer. Knights come back ahead, it's a two-on-one. Belmar flips ahead, Nozick, score! Tomas Nozick, one-nothing Vegas. Are you drawing on anything specific right now or
4: uh, to to find hope? How are you finding hope?
1: I think that um, hope is the opposite of fear. And fear is the absence of what we love. And we are right now without so many of the things that we love. And whether it's sports, family, friends, we are without so many of the things that make us who we are. But, um, you know, I talked earlier about The Soul of America, John Meacham's book. And in the introduction, you know, he cites Augustine and Aristotle. And, you know, one of the things, you know, that he talks about is disposition. And confidence is the mark of a hopeful disposition. That's Aristotle. And um, I think about how we can control our disposition. We can be confident and therefore hopeful. And um, for me, it is reading the works of great writers like, say, John Meacham or Aristotle or St. Augustine or uh, Thomas Aquinas, who happen to be quoted in this chapter of the book. And I I do look for inspiration from people I admire. I look at um, inspiration um, in uh, people who I know. They might not realize they're inspiring me, but they are. And I also look back on some of the things that I've done in my life and think, you know what? I, I was pretty happy with how I handled that, and I'm proud of it. I learned something from it. And at the same time, hey, there was this tough experience in my life. I, I wish I had handled it better, but, you know, I learned from that. All of those lessons from myself, from others, I feel stronger about who I am, more confident in who I am, Therefore, I feel that when this does come to a close, I'll be better off for it. Not that I am glad that it's happening, but using this time to grow in in a certain way. Uh, I, I've, I've, in fact, learned to bake banana bread with chocolate chips. Third time was a charm. I don't think they're going to be writing about that in the, <laughs> the latest John Meacham book. But you know what? I was pretty happy about that. that. Sounds lovely, though. You know, so so, uh, it didn't go too well the first time. The second time was worse, but the third time was really good. And uh, that is just a small measure of confidence that um, keeps me smiling, keeps me happy. And even to go back to some old high school videotapes that people want to see that are 20 years old and transferring those from VHS to YouTube. That's been fun. Uh, There are just so many things that uh, we don't often have the time to do in our lives. And uh, I'm trying to use this time to cover some of them because we're likely not going to have this amount of time to ourselves again in the future. Um, Mm. So why not take on some of these projects that have been lingering and lingering? Uh, I I hope that this is over as, as soon as possible. But I also fear that, uh, I don't fear, I, I think that when this is over, I will think back and say to myself, gee, you could have done more with the time that you had. And that's okay. That's okay. Because uh, none of us are perfect, right? We're, we're just trying to figure all of this out. And um, if, if it doesn't work out the first time, you try again. And that's how you build confidence. And as I mentioned, thanks to Aristotle, um, confidence and that confident disposition gives us hope.
4: You heard Dan reference the writer John Meacham in the quote, the opposite of fear is hope. That comes from Meacham's book, The Soul of America. And here's the full excerpt. Quote, the opposite of fear is hope defined as the expectation of good fortune not only for ourselves, but for the group to which we belong. Fear feeds anxiety and produces anger. Hope, particularly in a political sense, breeds optimism and feelings of well-being. Fear is about limits. Hope is about growth. Fear casts its eyes warily, even shiftily across the landscape. Hope looks forward toward the horizon. Fear points at others, assigning blame. Hope points ahead, working for a common good. Fear pushes away, hope pulls others closer. Fear divides, hope unifies. We can't solve all of our problems with hope alone. They're too big and they're too complex. What we do know is that hope can't exist without a community holding it up. It looks different when it's nuns or NFL players. But the human instinct is the same. We find what we're looking for in those around us. Thanks for joining us for our fourth episode. Also, a huge thank you to Scott Hansen, Hector Ledesma, and Dan Duva for their time. This was a WAER sports podcast produced by Carl Mogline, along with reporting from Corey Spector, Brandon Ross, and Frankie Vernowski. I'm Cooper Boardman. We'll talk to you next week.